Before we begin today, uh, we'd like to take a moment to thank Hunter in Washington for this wonderful letter that we received through email. He says, I just had to drop a line and let y'all know just how much I love your podcast. I was born and raised in Texas, but I am now living in Washington State. I've been feeling pretty homesick lately and just found the podcast. I've downloaded every episode and have listened to the first two, and I can't tell you how happy I am to have found this. I'm really looking forward to the Whataburger episode, number two with cheese and jalapenos for me, please, and I'm sure I'll be caught up in no time. Again, thank you for this podcast. It really means a lot to hear Texans talk about the greatest state in the Union. God bless you, and God bless the state of Texas. Hunter, we just want to let you know we're glad you found the show. Uh, We're sorry that you missed Texas, but just think of yourself as a Texas ambassador. And spread the word. And while you're talking about spreading the word, sharing this podcast, telling people to rate it on iTunes, showing them how to download it, uh, that's the best thing you can do for us. Okay, we have an update on a story that aired just a few weeks ago, the Buddy Holly Big Bopper story. We have found out that the National Transport and Safety Board is reopening the investigation into the crash that killed Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. Previously, it had been blamed on pilot error. Spartacus, come here, I'm going to wash your back. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Audie Murphy went from the cotton fields of Texas to the battlefields of Europe to the lights of Hollywood in his all-too-brief life. One of the most decorated soldiers in American history, perhaps his greatest legacy was his work to shed light on post-traumatic stress disorder. This week we look at a truly great Texas hero, Audie Murphy. But first, what's your favorite myth about Texas that isn't true? I personally do not have an oil well in my yard or that I own. You don't? You sure? I guess I'm the only Texan that doesn't. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I have never ridden a horse to school. Or anywhere? Oh, I've ridden a horse, just not to school. Oh, okay. It's my that's my Sunday horse. <laughs> for just, you know, driving and riding around town. I like that you can't go to jail for picking blue bonnets. You can't go to jail? It's not illegal to pick a flower. <laughs> or mow it. Or mow it. Now, is it crass and unpatriotic? You betcha. Okay. Still not illegal. Oh, darn it. Audie Leon Murphy was born in 1925 in Hunt County, Texas, in the Cotton Belt, northeast of Dallas. He was the seventh out of 12 children born to Emmett and Josie Murphy. Emmett was a sharecropper who left when Audie was young. Audie only attended school through fifth grade before dropping out to support the family. He took jobs picking cotton, working for a radio repair shop, and at a general store in the town of Greenville. His mother died when he was 16, and several of his younger siblings were placed in an orphanage while Audie lived with his older sister. His mother's death opened a huge hole in his life, which he never really recovered from. He later wrote, quote, When she passed away, she took something of me with her. It seems I've been searching for it ever since. 1941 would be a pivotal year for Audie for more than just the loss of his mother. That December, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and the United States was drawn into the Second World War. Almost immediately, Murphy tried to enlist in the Marines and in the Navy, but was rejected by both. He was still underage, short, and since there was never enough to eat at the time, underweight. He persevered and changed his diet in order to gain weight. 
Later that year, he persuaded his older sister to write a letter attesting that he was a year older than he really was and was finally accepted for service by the U.S. Army. When Murphy entered the Army, he was 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed 112 pounds. He had just turned 17. Murphy went through basic training at Fort Walters in Mineral Wells, which is west of Fort Worth. His company commander felt he was too slight for combat and tried to get him assigned as a cook or a baker. But again, he persevered with his intent on being an infantryman. His cause was helped by the fact that he earned an expert badge with the bayonet and a marksman badge with the rifle. Years of hunting small game for his family had made him a crack shot. He transferred to advanced combat training in Fort Meade in Maryland before shipping out in January 1943 to North Africa. When he reached North Africa, he was assigned to Company B, 1st Battalion, 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Infantry Division under General Lucian Truscott. Truscott's division was going through rigorous training in preparation for the invasion of Sicily. Murphy proved to be a natural soldier, participating in grueling marches, drills, and practice landings, and soon was promoted to Private First Class. 3rd Division, as part of General George Patton's 7th Army, set sail from Tunisia for Sicily on July 7, 1943. Murphy saw his first combat in Sicily and was promoted to the rank of corporal, but he soon realized the reality of combat. He wrote, quote, I have seen war as it actually is, and I do not like it, but I will go on fighting. In September, 3rd Division was part of the Allied invasion of Italy at Salerno, and Murphy saw himself in the thick of the fighting up in the Italian boot. By December, the division had suffered heavy casualties, and Murphy was promoted again to sergeant. That month, the division was pulled off the line to be a major part of the Anzio operation, an attempt to bypass the German lines by landing behind them. As Murphy trained with his unit for the landings, he was promoted again to section leader and then to staff sergeant. He missed the initial landings, though, when he came down with malaria and was hospitalized. He rejoined his unit at the end of January and found Anzio was a hell that the Allies were struggling to break out of. By February, his company was down to 30 men. He later wrote, Quote, a doom-like quality hangs over the beachhead. Soon the ineffective commander, John Lucas, was replaced by 3rd Division's Truscott, and the American forces took more aggressive actions. On March 2nd, Murphy and his squad were taking shelter in an abandoned farmhouse where they observed that an artillery barrage had disabled a German tank nearby. It had been abandoned by its crew, but Murphy thought that it could be repaired. He crept out alone at night and destroyed the tank with rifle grenades, earning him a bronze star with the V for Valor device. Murphy's unit was finally taken off the line in March. In May, Murphy's unit joined the breakout from Anzio, and they advanced to Rome in June. For the remainder of the summer, Murphy and his unit were off the line, serving occupation duty, and he was promoted to platoon sergeant. In August, 7th Army participated in Operation Dragoon, the invasion of southern France, and the 3rd platoon was in the first wave of the assault. Though the landings weren't heavily opposed, as they moved inland, they encountered German resistance. A section of Murphy's men got separated from the main unit and was pinned down by enemy fire. Murphy ran out alone to bring back the lost squad. He took over the squad's machine gun to return fire at the German soldiers, killing two and wounding one. When he gave the machine gun back to his own men, he was joined by his best friend, Laddie Tipton. At that moment, two Germans came out of the house nearby waving a white flag. Tipton thought they were genuine and stood up, beckoning to the German soldiers to come over. He was immediately killed by machine gun fire coming from within the house. Seeing his best friend killed in front of him caused Murphy to snap. He later wrote, quote, A demon seems to have entered my body. My brain is coldly alert and logical. 
I do not think of the danger to myself. My whole being is concentrated on killing. Murphy ran towards the house, ignoring their fire at him, and he killed six of the men inside, wounded two, and captured eleven prisoners. For this action, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. During the fighting through August, his battalion was also awarded the Presidential Unit Citation. As the fighting moved north through France, Murphy was lightly wounded by a mortar shell, earning his first Purple Heart. By September, Sergeant Murphy and two other men were the only members of their unit who had not been killed or taken off the line for serious wounds. Murphy found himself surrounded by and responsible for strangers, replacements who were little more than boys fresh out of training. On October 2nd, he attacked a German machine gun nest, again alone, earning a silver star, and won another one a few days later for further solo actions. He also earned a battlefield commission to lieutenant, and another Purple Heart for getting wounded by a sniper. This wound took him off the line from October until the end of 1944. Lieutenant Murphy rejoined his unit in January 1945. This was just in time to take part in the fierce fight to reduce a powerful German force that still held a bridgehead on the Rhine River. The battle for the Colmar Pocket was one of the bloodiest in the war. In just three weeks fighting, casualties reduced Company B from 235 men to just 18 men. As the only remaining officer, Murphy became company commander of what amounted to a squad of men. On January 26, Murphy and his men held their part of the line, waiting for reinforcements when the Germans counterattacked. Murphy ordered his men to retreat while they stayed behind to try to hold off the Germans and relay intelligence to the rear. As the enemy advanced, he jumped up onto a burning American tank and fired its 50 caliber machine gun at them, killing an entire squad of German troops. His men watched amazed from the woods as Murphy fought for over an hour, sustaining yet another wound. He only stopped and retreated when he ran out of ammunition. When he reached his men, he ordered them to go back with him to attack the weakened Germans. The enemy's counterattack was broken, and only when they retreated did Murphy let medics treat his wound. During the fight, he personally killed or wounded 50 Germans, and it was for this amazing action that he was recommended by his superiors for the Medal of Honor. This is the United States' highest military honor. Years later, when he was asked why he'd done what he'd done, he simply replied, They were killing my friends. Murphy continued to fight through the end of the Colmar Battle, which ended on February 8th, when the Germans surrendered. 3rd Division was awarded another presidential unit citation, and Murphy was promoted to 1st Lieutenant. In March, he was taken off the line and assigned to a non-combat role. He had been nominated for the Medal of Honor, and the brass didn't want to risk him further in combat. He disobeyed orders, though, one time when he learned that Company B's senior officers had been killed in battle, and he commandeered a jeep to rush to the front to take command until experienced leaders could take over the unit. On June 2, 1945, near Salzburg, Austria, after the war in Europe was over, Lieutenant Audie Murphy was awarded the Medal of Honor and the Legion of Merit by General Alexander Patch. He was considered at the time the most decorated American soldier of the war, having won every combat award for valor that the Army awarded during that time of service, the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, the Legion of Merit, two Silver Stars, two Bronze Stars, three Purple Hearts, and two Presidential Unit Citations, as well as the World War II Victory Medal. He was also awarded both the French and Belgian Croix de Guerre and the French Legion of Honor, France's highest military honor. He was two weeks shy of his 20th birthday. On June 13, 1945, Murphy returned to Texas. To say that his home state gave him a hero's welcome would be an understatement. A quarter of a million people showed up in San Antonio for a parade held for returning Texas veterans, and he was the star attraction. He was given leave for 30 days and returned home to see his family, with the media following his every step. 
thousands showed up in his hometown of Farmersville to see him speak. He was the star at a nearby McKinney Rodeo on July 4th. Life magazine even featured him on their July 16th cover. Murphy considered a career in the military and seriously pursued gaining admission to West Point. He was supported by Truscott, Patch, and especially his district's representative to Congress, Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn. But his war wounds and lack of formal education made passing either the academic or physical exams a problem. He looked into attending Texas A&M University as well, but in the end decided not to go to college. He was discharged from the Army in September 1945 and transferred to the officer's reserve. Audie struggled at home after leaving the Army. He exhibited very clear signs of what today would be called post-traumatic stress disorder. He was tightly wound, easily startled, had stomach problems and mood swings, and suffered terrible nightmares. For the rest of his life, he slept with a loaded pistol under his pillow and would sometimes freeze in vivid flashbacks. He sought treatment from Army psychiatrists, but they little understood the long-term effects of combat stress at the time, and they prescribed him sedatives. He developed an addiction to those sedatives. Still, Murphy was able to find some relief through creative outlets. He found that despite his lack of education, he had a skill with words and wrote poetry, much of it about his experiences in the war and his friends in the Army. In 1945, legendary actor James Cagney saw his cover of Life magazine and signed him to a motion picture contract in Hollywood. Murphy was small, but he was handsome, had an easy charisma, and was a genuine hero. He never made a film for Cagney, but he stayed in Hollywood, taking singing and acting classes, and began to appear in small roles in movies. Yeah, Audie Murphy sounds a lot like me, except for the heroic part. <laughs> he also met a writer named David McClure, who collaborated with him on Murphy's autobiography in 1948. The book, To Hell and Back, was an instant hit and is considered a classic war memoir. Murphy began to appear in more and more films and in larger roles. In 1949, he signed a seven-year contract with United Artists. He also married his first wife, an actress named Wanda Hendricks. They were only married a year, though, as his PTSD drove them quickly apart. In 1950, Murphy was activated to the Texas National Guard as a captain to train men going to fight in Korea. He remained in the Texas Guard in an inactive role until 1969, retiring as a major. Murphy's film roles were mostly mid-range westerns, although he did appear in a few classics. In 1951, he was in John Huston's adaptation of the Civil War novel The Red Badge of Courage, which was one of his finest acting performances. In 1955, To Hell and Back was adapted into a film at Universal. Murphy initially resisted playing himself in the film, preferring Tony Curtis, but he finally agreed. It was a huge hit, the biggest of Murphy's career, and he earned over a million dollars from the film. It was also praised for its realism and for the way it showed everyday soldiers in the war. For the next few years, he was a big star, still appearing mostly in westerns, but he did star in one of the earliest Hollywood films about Vietnam, 1958's The Quiet American, where he gave another great performance. Spartacus, come here, I'm going to wash your back. How weird is that to... Play yourself. I mean, to play yourself in a movie about your life. Ten years later, although he's only 30, so he kind of Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, it boggles the mind. But it's a great, yeah. He's, it, I mean, I, I yeah. can't think of anyone else that's and done he didn't, that. And he, he didn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah. He preferred Tony Curtis. In the 1960s, Murphy found himself typecast and was not able to break out of the Western genre. He tried his hand at TV in 1961, appearing in the show Whisperer Smith, which only aired for six episodes. He did well raising racehorses, but he also racked up considerable debt from gambling losses, bad investments, and back taxes. By the late 1960s, he was in pretty poor financial shape, 
but he refused to appear in commercials for alcohol or cigarettes because he wanted to be a positive influence on young people. He also found a late career as a country-western songwriter, pinning the lyrics to several classic country songs, including the hits Shutters and Boards and When the Wind Blows in Chicago. By 1971, Murphy was retired from acting and focused solely on breeding quarter horses and ranching. He was killed on May 29th in a plane crash in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia. The pilot of the small plane had no instrument rating and wasn't qualified to fly in stormy conditions. Sensing a disturbing trend in famous Texans. The plane crashed into Brush Mountain near Roanoke, killing all on board. Audie Murphy was 45 years old and left behind his wife, Pamela, and two children. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and his funeral was attended by many notables, including future President George H.W. Bush, as well as many survivors of the 3rd Infantry Division. Medal of Honor winners are entitled to have their headstones at the cemetery decorated with gold gilt, but Murphy's will stated that he wished only to have his grave be like that of any other common soldier. Today, his grave is the second most visited in Arlington, trailing only President Kennedy's. Over the years, there have been a number of commemorations for Murphy. Hunt County is host to the Audie Murphy American Cotton Museum, which features exhibits about their most famous son as well as information about the Texas cotton belt where he grew up. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he was also given the Texas Legislative Medal of Honor in 2013 in recognition of his extraordinary service as a Texan in the military. In 1986, a group of non-commissioned officers in Fort Hood and Central Texas started the Sergeant Audie Murphy Club, an elite organization of NCOs whose demonstrated performance and inherent leadership qualities and abilities are characterized by those of Sergeant Audie Murphy. This private service organization has expanded throughout the U.S. Army and is involved in outreach to military members and their families. Perhaps Murphy's longest lasting and greatest legacy, though, was his exposure of post-traumatic stress disorder to the wider public. Though shell shock and combat fatigue had been well known since before the First World War, most people didn't understand that it could continue as a long-term condition. Many veterans simply quietly suffered and often did not get the help they needed. Murphy always spoke candidly and openly about his struggles to the press and in his autobiography. He became especially vocal as more and more young men returned from Korea and especially from Vietnam suffering as he did. He called on the government to give increased consideration and study to the emotional impact of combat and to extend veterans' benefits to cover psychiatric treatment for those who were suffering. In 1973, the Audie Murphy Memorial Veterans Hospital was opened in San Antonio. For over 40 years, it has provided medical, psychiatric, and rehabilitation to Americans' veterans in honor of one of their own. So I'm just going to say, from a movie point of view, that the Captain America movie got it wrong. Like, he didn't need any super soldiers here. No, no, <laughs> like, no yeah. He, the guy was... He, ba- he just needed to be from Texas. Well, yeah, he just needed he to be from Texas. Five foot five, and he'd put on weight, and he was 112 pounds. Yeah. I That's, mean, the, the way that they describe him when he joined the army, that that was me at that age. Yeah. Of course, it's pretty much me now well, that's, but the point is that's steve when, rogers when i was 17 that's steve yeah. rogers i mean yeah he he was puny and underweight and yeah and the marines laughed at him there's a famous the movie goes into that the hell and back it's a great movie you should really try to find it i, I haven't been able to find it on any streaming media uh but i've seen it many times it comes on turner classic anyway here's a scene where he goes into to after pearl harbor to join the marines and these big burly marines kind of laugh at him and say get get lost kid What's amazing about his story is that each of those actions where he won a medal, like that would have been enough for us to talk about him. Right. 
each one of those actions, but he had like five of them. I think there's, you know, it's these kinds of stories. I think that everybody goes, well, the the greatest generation talking stuff because you see these exceptional stories of of coming from absolutely nothing, and yet has this incredible depth of character, loyalty, bravery. I mean, this is the very best of what we see in a in we want to see in a soldier it's what, it's what we yeah. everyone is aspires to it's why yes. it's such an inspirational story well and it's incredible because you know all these things that he did they they sound they don't sound like something that could have actually happened they sound mm-hmm. extremely exaggerated yeah. i mean i love the fact that it talks about you know he went and he was in this combat and he was in this combat and then he saw his friend killed and he ran in a building killed six germans wounded 11 others and then it was in the next action where he finally got wounded <laughs> for the first time yeah. So he did all these amazing things and just, you know, survived every time and always threw himself back into it. He had, he has, he had that, you know, that grit that we talk about when we talk about Texans. But his book and his writing about it, he did not glamorize that. Yeah, he, no, exactly. He, 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 he called it to hell in the back for, for a reason. And he said, I was possessed by a demon, basically. I was, he said he was so angry that his friends were getting killed. He stopped making friends with the kids that were coming in because he didn't, he didn't even want to get to know their names yeah. because he knew they'd get killed. And so he was, he, he likened it to being possessed, just so angry. He, he, and then afterwards he would shake and just break down after, especially after the tank action, when he jumped on the tank, like he, he, he said he was separated from himself in his book. There's all the wartime stuff, but I, I think it's really interesting when you see that he talks about, coming home to the fanfare that was there in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And I was just going to throw in a, a short anecdote. My grandfather, who passed away last year, uh, served in World War II, mostly in the Pacific. He was on a ship in the Pacific. He was in the Navy. But he talked about after the war, he ended up in Los Angeles. And for six days, he just you would go down to the train station and you'd wait for a slot to open. And your name would be on the border. It wouldn't be there. And if it wasn't there, then you just found something to do for the day. So for six, it took him six days to get a slot, but he said it was interesting that the train he was on, the trains coming to Texas, like he saw the trains going to other places were cattle cars. They were crowded. There was all this going on. But for some reason, the trains that were coming to Texas, there was luxury coaches. <laughs> they had porters in them. Like for some reason, he said, uh, he said, I don't know why, but for some reason the Texas soldiers were treated much better than the rest of the other soldiers. And I've never figured out the, the beyond the, the truth of that story and where it went, but he, he, he did retain, but, yeah. but there was that funny side of it that there was something about, there's still, even then there's something about Texas. And the interesting thing is he, he has that, that what we would consider that typical depression era story of, you know, very poor family and the depression and everything. But the, the fact was, is that, he even had kind of a more hard scrabble life than a lot of people in the depression did because life in life in the cotton belt in, in Texas during the 1930s and forties was really hard. It was just very difficult. Yeah. And when your father leaves and your mother dies, I mean, t- with 12 kids, somebody has got to pay, you know, somebody has got to work. Yeah. And it's still Audie Murphy's story still somewhat follows the kind of the Texan tradition of, well, this didn't work out. So I'm going to move on to the next thing mm-hmm. and reinvent myself. And I mean, Came back from the war. He was a decorated hero. He could have basically done whatever he wanted. He could have retired and 
lived out his life. He's like, well, you know, we'll give this Hollywood thing a try, yeah, and, and, and he really and went on to it. a successful yeah. career. And you know, he worked at it too. I mean, he's he 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 didn't make a movie with Cagney, but he they said he worked. He actually attended classes to learn how to act. The the movies that I think about when I think about Audie Murphy are are, are obviously to Hell and Back, which is really a very good movie. Uh, another really good one is the the Red Badge of Courage, which we probably all watched when we were in mm-hmm. school. Um, it's a black and white film. And it's interesting that he plays a coward, essentially. His character yeah. well, is and, a coward who has to overcome fear. Yeah, and I find it also find it interesting that someone that's, you know, suffering these horrific, debilitating um post traumatic stress issues, you know, went into a field where he could pretend to be other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe for him that was an escape from what he was enduring yeah. in his own life. It didn't really make it into the uh, into the script, but there's lots of anecdotes of him frightening his friends where he would lock up. And, and that was probably a big reason why he didn't want to do To Hell and Back. He didn't do a lot of war movies other than The Red Badge of Courage and To Hell and Back. He did a lot of westerns. But he would lock up or freeze or go into these vivid flashbacks where his friends were frightened of what he was what was happening well, to the, him. The truth is, is that, you know, it, it's a debilitating mm-hmm. mental um disease you know and it's it's brought about by that you know the you know you, you think about the stress that that he's endured and then you see this story of well we called it shell shock in world war one and world war two there's this which the irony being that the most famous movie about that army Patton, uh you know has has the huge scene where oh, he, george yeah. c scott you know slaps a soldier for for war, yeah. war nerves, war nerves. Yeah. But in reality, you're like, no, that's it's a real thing, and it's horrible, and it isn't something that that ended in Korea or Vietnam or even in modern conflicts. It, We're yeah. you know we still have people dealing with it today. It's a very real condition that takes some understanding. Yeah. And it didn't start with World War One. It started probably with the first battle that actually happened. But <laughs> um, the uh, he actually had uh, Pamela. I, I read a quote from her. His wife, his his wife Pamela, said that she, he was watching a, a thing on TV about German war vet uh, uh, orphans, orphans of the war, and he broke down weeping, it was inconsolable with guilt that he may have killed their fathers. Uh, you know that that's the kind of thing, and he dealt with that his whole life. And and it's I think it's interesting also that it, Pamela, after he died. Uh, she went to work for the uh, Veterans Administration in Los Angeles for 35 years hmm. uh, as a clerk. So that had an impact on his family and on his life. Yeah, and it's, it's he's he's an impactful person. You you can't hear the story now. The, the 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 last thing that I thought really, and and the last note of his life is the the fact that uh, the tombstone that he said, "I want I want a simple soldier's tombstone." I'd like to think that it's a Texan aspect that a lot of us have. Of humility, mm-hmm. which maybe isn't associated with Texas yeah. at some time, but yeah. I want to say, you know, he's just so humble when he's like, "My, you know, I'm, I'm not special. He I was, just did he my was job." The everyman, and that's what's that's what was a, an attractive quality about him was he was the everyman. He was not Captain America, but, but he, he was, was he was not exceptional in any way yeah. except at being exceptional. Except at being exceptional, yeah, yeah. He was he was a handsome guy. He was a very good looking guy, and he had a charm about him that was that was really nice. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. 
I know you love the show, so tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. And if you'd like to contribute financially to the show, visit us at patreon.com slash texaspodcast. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway.